Hi, good morning, good afternoon, good evening to wherever you are in the world. Um, we're very, very glad to have you with us. Um, as you can see, the familiarity of the face is a little different for this episode. Unfortunately, our favorite host, Omar, could not be with us today, uh, but hopefully he'll join us uh, again in the subsequent episodes. Um, and welcome to Use Kogan's the International Podcast, episode 17. Um, today we have with us a very distinguished fellow of young professionals who have formerly served as uh, judicial fellows with the International Court of Justice. And then we're very, very glad to have you join us. So thank you for being with us. Um, what we are going to do is uh, maybe we can start off with a introduction across the panel. So I'll perhaps uh, have uh, go go over it um, alphabetically and start with uh, Amir, uh, then Beatrice, then Camilla, then Shashank. Uh, and then we can get into the thick of things and uh, get things rolling. So Amir, the floor is yours. Sure. Thank you so much. And thank you, Ferris, and everyone for having us on the Use Kogan's podcast. We're really excited. Um, so my name is Amir Farhadi. I'm originally from the United States. Um, I was able to participate in the Judicial Fellows Program in 2018-2019 as um, the fellow from Harvard Law School. Um, I had originally done my undergraduate legal education, or I'm sorry, my first degree in law, I should say, in, um, in France at Sciences Po Paris. Um, and I worked at the court with uh, Judge uh, Giorgio Gaia uh, from Italy. And um, I'm currently, after leaving the court, I returned to the law firm that I was working at, Deckard LLP in Washington, where I practice investor state arbitration. Um, and I would just say, I think maybe on behalf of all of us, that we're really excited to, to talk today about the Judicial Fellows Program and to help promote it. Um, but of course, we're appearing here in our personal capacity and giving uh, informal advice that doesn't represent necessarily the, the rules and conditions of, of the program or the position of the court. Thanks. I'm Beatrice Walton, and I am also a Judicial Fellow from the year 2018 to 2019. I went to the court as the Fellow from Yale Law School following my JD degree. I also have a Master's in International Relations from the University of Cambridge. I worked at the court for Judge Carol Gavorgian, as well as, more briefly, as an assistant to ad hoc Judge Skotnikov. Thanks so much to the Use Kogan podcast for having us on today. We're really excited to talk. Hi all, uh, my name is Camila Marino and I, I am a Colombian attorney. I serve also as a judicial fellow from the, the, same, year, the same year as Amir and Beatrice, 2018-2019. And I work with Judge Patrick Robinson. Uh, I was sponsored to practice to do this fellowship by Stanford University uh, after finishing my LLM program. Thank you very much for having us and a great initiative. Uh, hi, I'm Shashank Kumar. I'm an Indian lawyer. I was a judicial fellow at the court from 2012 to 2013. Um, so about five years earlier from the other participants. Um, I uh, was a fellow from uh, Yale Law School where I completed my LLM in 2011. I served as the fellow. Well, at that time, actually, we'll probably get into this, but that, at that time, the program was called the University Traineeship Program. Uh, and I uh, served as the trainee for uh, Judge Donahue from the United States and Judge Shui from China, Vice President Shui now. 
Um, and now I am at the World Trade Organization where I used to work for the appellate body, um, but now I assist panels in the settlement of world trade disputes. Thank you for having me. Right, so having finally introduced everyone, so I'll, I'll get back to Amir. So Amir, if you could just uh, give a brief introduction of what the Judicial Fellows Program is, and maybe just uh, on that note, you would start off with the discussion and what sort of the application process looks like, particularly in Harvard Law School and generally as well. Sure, of course. Um, so the Judicial Fellows Program uh, originally, I believe, uh, as Shashan mentioned, was originally known as the University Traineeship Program. And I think it started in the early 2000s when there was an idea to help bring over some um, graduate students in law from, I believe, NYU was the first participating uh, university in order to support the judges um, with, their, uh, with their work in legal uh, research and writing. And the program started there and it continued on for several years. Um, and then it, you know, as the courts um, sort of docket started to fill up and become, more, become busier, the uh, court actually, I believe, um, the registry of the court proposed to the General Assembly to create a budget for permanent law clerks to, to also assist um, the members of the court. And so now you have a program uh, which exists, which coexists alongside uh, UN official ICJ positions that are uh, referred to as P2s. Uh, and those individuals, there are 15 of them, they assist the judges. And then there are also 15 judicial fellows who also assist the judges, but will come through a partnership with various universities uh, across the world. And so the partnership with the universities um, who are uh, essentially responsible for providing the funding for the fellowship and um, helping in the selection process, which I think we'll, we'll discuss a little bit more in detail in, in a moment, but um, the universities will fund these positions, which are one year long. Uh, and um, through that, uh, universities, it, it's really, it's open to, it's currently open to any university that, that is willing to participate across the world, provided that they can um, provide the necessary funding uh, for fellows. So that, that is something that I, that I believe is different uh, from in the past. In the past, I think it was, it was kind of a small number of universities that had joined on on an ad hoc basis. Um, and, but now, as of today, it's really open to any university to participate. That being said, there are a number of universities that traditionally apply to participate in the program every year by putting forward candidates or a candidate, uh, but uh, universities are free to, to participate and there is on the website of the court um, sort of instructions both for applicants and for universities that are looking to sponsor a fellow. And perhaps as a follow-up, Amir, um, and, and this also anybody else who's, who wants to pick up on the question is, what is the sort of individual criteria to apply for the Judicial Fellowship uh, if, if a student wants to apply for it uh, in, in your university and indeed in the other universities as well? Uh, sure, I can answer quickly and then maybe throw to, to Beatrice or, or the others. Um, so I think you can think of the application process and the criteria. It's sort of a two-tier process really um, because you have the, or the the sponsoring university that has to provide the sponsorship each university will often uh, organize its own internal selection process in the first instance 
So that is done differently for each university. Uh, for example, at Harvard Law School, um, you know, they put out, it's the public, uh, public interest advising office, they put out uh, a call for applications. There's a committee of faculty uh, who will then review the applications and they select one individual to propose to the court. Um, other universities will select multiple candidates. A, a university is allowed to, I believe, propose up to three different candidates. Uh, so once all of these participating universities, uh, which are required to, as we said before, undertake to, to provide the funding for the fellowship, once those universities have submitted, um, and it is actually the university that sort of formally submits the application on behalf of the fellows, um, once those applications are submitted, then the court will begin its own selection process out of those um, 15, uh, out of those many applications from many universities and in order to select the 15 individuals who will assist uh, the 15 judges of, of the court. So, so really I think that if, you know, for the listeners out there, um, I think you have to bear in mind that when you're applying and um, trying to put yourself in the best position uh, as possible to be considered for the program, bear in mind that, you know, you have this sort of two-stage process. So you need to keep in mind sort of the audience of uh, your, in, your university and uh, securing their sponsorship, but then you also need to um, uh, be selected by the court as well. So sometimes it's different criteria that are applied and, and it'll depend on each, on each university. I could just say something about something that, that Omar touched on um, about the origins of the program. And again, I, I, I happen to be an artifact in this conversation now I realize because 2012 fellow right um, but it's very interesting to me as to how the program's gone from being so informal to a day-to-day -day when we're having a podcast about it and it, it continues to remain in existence despite the fact that as he pointed out the p2 positions have been approved by the general assembly and in fact not only has it grown in its inclusiveness in terms of universities i i believe the program started with a few law students or well recent graduates coming to the a court serving in a pool that were assisting the entire court and then uh, progressively individual judicial fellows or trainees whatever you want to call them were assigned to say four judges and then they were assigned to two judges and now you have a situation where there's an in individual fellow for each judge of the court so um, it's, it's I mean the court clearly sees some value in the program and I can certainly attest that I think it was a great experience so that's just uh, if I could just jump in on that as well. Um, one of the really interesting things that happened actually last October was that uh, the president of the court, Judge Yusuf, asked uh, the UN General Assembly to consider a trust fund for, judicial, for the Judicial Fellows Program. And so one of the, you know, the benefits of, of that, if it were to come into fruition, would be that it would potentially alleviate the need for a university to itself fund the Judicial Fellow. And the hope there is that then the program could expand to even more universities around the world and to encompass you know a much more diverse set of uh, nationalities and universities than than uh, has already been represented um, so you know the, it, when we're talking about the history it has tended to be the case that a lot of judicial fellows have come from american universities because there uh, tended to be the funds available there that said the court, even among the applicants from those schools, did tend to, if you, you can go on the ICJ website and look up uh, alumni and their nationality and university, uh, it did tend to take a, a lot of, a lot of um, 
students from the LLM or the SJD program. And so that helped a bit with diversity. But the goal, I think, at least in my opinion, would be to hopefully, uh, you know, have something like this trust fund so that, you know, it's not just uh, the same 20 to 25 schools every year applying, but that um, really anybody from any university would, would, would be able to, 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 to have funding. So that's the goal and we'll, we'll hope to see that uh, come into fruition. I have an interesting story on that because at that time when I was at the court, they weren't really having a conversation about a trust fund. So all the trainees and all the alumni that we could at least gather at that point, there was no list. Uh, we sort of tried to come up with a fund, a crowdsourced fund that we could create um, to fund some people from say, you know, uh, the developing world or the majority world or what have you. Of course, it didn't take off because the court isn't just going to take you know, money from judicial fellows uh, existing or prior and give it to new ones. Obviously, that, ra that raises lots of questions of propriety, but it was something that was thought of. And on uh, Judge Yusuf's proposal, I, I, it was interesting because in his speech last year, he said that a proposal would be presented to the General Assembly early this year. And I tried to do a bit of research before this, before this discussion. I wasn't able to find a proposal that was actually published, uh, that was presented to the General Assembly. So, but I mean, it is, it is, I mean, I think the point that Beatrice makes is, is, is obvious that in the early years, the, 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 the program was really limited to, to Western universities um, and, and non-Western graduates who happen to do LLM in Western universities and come through that path, you know. Yeah, maybe we can also continue to have a discussion about the uh, representation aspect uh, in the fellowship it's, itself and how it was uh, with your interactions, uh, collective interactions with other fellows and which nationalities were they from and how that whole experience was uh, a little later in the podcast. Uh, but perhaps I can uh, pose a question to Camilla as well. Camilla, what was your experience in so far as the application process was concerned? Uh, and, and what do you think in your opinion is the uh, value or the importance of obviously a solid academic record and uh, background? Well, my experience in the application process was I learned from the pro, actually I learned from the program during my LLM year. So I didn't knew it before it. And all my career I have been a, a public interest attorney and I focus in international law, primarily in the Americas. So for me, it was a great opportunity to apply during the LLM as a, well, to continue my career in international law. Um, as Amir mentioned, every university is different and Stanford Law School had its own way of presenting uh, the candidates before the court. So um, it was uh, also the public interest office that launched the, uh, the information to the, to the uh, students. They gave us a deadline we presented our information and then I heard back that I was elected for the program. So it was a, a really nice surprise, especially because I, I can say that I was doing my undergrad here in Colombia. Um, I, was, I did a, a focus of inter, in public international law. However, during my practice years after the undergrad, uh, I was more focused in the inter-American system of human rights and maybe in business and human rights before the U.S. tribunals because I, I work in an NGO. So it was uh, that mixture maybe 
uh, of profile that that maybe created an out well an, an outstanding um, uh, profile in order for the court to be selected because I I don't know how, how well as Amir also mentioned that the, there are two two steps to be selected for the program so yeah. I guess another point that bears mentioning in my experience on this point and for the, for the, for the viewers, I guess, is the fact that not everybody, not every fellow that I met was steeped in the law and procedure of the ICJ. You know, the court was actually quite open to getting lawyers with different backgrounds, not entirely public international law, human rights, business and human rights, corporate, international corporate law, etc which to me was, again, again, I think it, it signified that it was open to engaging with, 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 with lawyers working in these fields and which was nice because they always, everybody, when you get together, had great ideas. So uh, Shashank, I think you raise a very interesting point. So just to sort of see, is there a specific criteria in terms of prospective applicants that they should, for example, be aiming for? So for example, do you think academic record, for example, is that important? How important are prior publications? How important would it be to have sort of a strong CV which sort of ties into international law? And finally, how important is it to have like a strong writing sample that you're going to be submitting for the application? So if you could maybe speak to some of the things which are common to all universities, so for example, everyone submits a CV, everyone submits referees, uh, reference letters, everyone submits writing samples. So maybe if you could just give some advice in that context to prospective applicants to sort of the do's and don'ts. So yeah, um, I guess it's it, it, it's obviously difficult to attach uh, weight to these things in the abstract, right? Every every applicant's profile will will differ, and at the end you've got to play to your strengths. But I guess the one general point to make at the beginning is at the outset is the fact that public international law is generally a, a academic heavy field. And, and it does sort of uh, privilege if you have, uh, if you can write well, if you can research well, if you have a few publications. So by and large, sort of generally speaking as a rule of thumb, I'd say that publications are definitely useful. Publications on matters of public international law are definitely useful. Although I, I do not remember if, if what the court asks for are publications in its application process, but I think they are writing samples. Who's a CV? So it's not necessary. I think what's obviously necessary is that, so you need to submit a writing sample to the court together with your CV and reference letters. And this may go through your university and they may have a selection process or, or it may go directly to the court. But, but the writing sample obviously has to be, has to be very good. Uh, it helps if it has to do something with, with the court's work or with public international law, I believe. Uh, reference letters, of course, are extremely important. Usually, as I think with most reference letters, they should be written by people who actually know you and your work in the field and have engaged with you and, and, and know your abilities. Um, getting a really famous name to write a reference letter while they are not fully aware of your work, again, may not, may not be the best approach. Um, and then in terms of CV, academic record, of course, I think, I think, I think matters a lot. Languages matter a lot. Diversity is a factor that I think the court actively considers in its selection process. Uh, bear in mind also that this is an entry level position. It's not a professional position in that a P2 position now exists. So it's almost to give applicants or, or selected applicants a flavor of the ICJ and to turn them into say ambassadors of the institution in their respective countries. So the court is, for example, I believe that, that for P2s, the requirement still is that English and French is a must 
but from what I gather from, from the guidance given for judicial fellows on the court's website, uh, really good knowledge of one is necessary and, and uh, a good knowledge of the other or an understanding of the other is encouraged. So you see there are slightly different uh, requirements for, for these two positions. Um, Yeah, I, I would just to jump in there for a second. Um, I would I would definitely echo that, and I would say that I think maybe the best advice um, to prospective applicants is to really try to, um, you know, pre present your, yourself in a way that um, is going to help you clear that first hurdle. Especially, um, I I I think just in 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 terms of transparency, I think that often the internal process of the university is more competitive than let's say the actual process once the applications get to the court, right? Because you know, you could be, if you are at Yale Law School, you could be against, you know, 30 other Yale students who have very similar sort of, you know, everyone has great grades and this and that. And you know, so there's you need to think about how you can get the edge in in that context. And you know, I think that oftentimes as Beatrice was mentioning, it'll be LLM or SJD students who are selected from from you know the Anglo-American universities, and you know that will be because they've had sort of more of an interest or access to some of the more traditional public international law opportunities, like you know working in an international organization, um, studying uh, public international law in, in more than one or two courses, and those types of things. Um, so you know you need to think about that. You need to think about, and, and I think that you know there's if you're going to be applying from an extremely competitive. Um, let's say US-based or UK-based school, that I think maybe should be your main concern. And then, you know, also of course, trying to think about how the court will view you after that. But I do believe that in most cases, I think that, you know, if you, if you wanted to sort of add something to your application or modify it a little bit after you've been selected by your university, I think that there's no problem with that, generally speaking. Um, so, you know, I think about that first step, especially, However, if you're coming from a university that doesn't have a particularly competitive internal program, then yes, you should be thinking more about sort of the, the perspective of the court. And as uh, Shoshan mentioned, I think that publications and the writing sample itself uh, is really key. Uh, one, you know, there's different ways that you can try to set yourself apart and there's sort of some advice we can give. Um, I included a English language writing sample and a French language writing sample. If you have it, why not? Um, I think that for the length of the writing sample, I think there's a limit, um, but it could be good to you know, try to showcase something that shows um, obviously academic rigor, but also um, keeping in mind that you know, the court is looking for people who are gonna help with everyday type of research. So you want to show off a sort of more of a concrete perhaps piece than maybe a think piece. Um, and uh, in terms of letters of recommendation, I think that the general, I believe it's two that you're, I believe you're allowed to, you can you submit letters of reference, but you also can list referees. So individuals who could act as references for you, but haven't necessarily written your letters of recommendation. So that's a chance where you can, you know, sort of add a little bit more to your, to your application. But in terms of the two letters of reference, as as was said before, you know the academic aspect is is really um, is really key in international law. So perhaps you know one academic reference and then one professional reference is always a good rule of thumb. So try to think a little bit about um, ways to set yourself apart. 
If I could just jump in, I thought Shashank made a good point. Um, something that I, I think about when advising uh, students about this process is just what Shashank said that the court, you know, it's it's an amazing launching pad for a career in public international law, but it's by no means an end in of itself um, for young people. So, you know, I think what's important is to think about how you want to build sort of your 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 repertoire of things you want to present to the court around a, a broader sort of um, uh, process for yourself of, of, of entering the field of public international law and developing a career in public international law. So it's worth thinking about sort of how do you want the court, how do you want to leverage your experience at the court? How do you want to make it a part of your larger career path in public international law, if, if, if that's in, indeed what you, you want to do? And so I say that because, um, you know, immediately after the, uh, the court, you know, you'll have to go in, in some direction. And so it's, it's important to sort of keep, uh, you know, your options open and, and develop different areas uh, of your experience that you, that you might be able to um, further pursue your, your, your interest in public international law after the court. Um, and, and, and the other reason this is important is because actually the average age of uh, participants in the Judicial Fellows Program, at least in our year, was actually um, about 30 and a half years old. Uh, we, we did the, we averaged it out. And, and I say that because it means that a number of folks did have experience in a, in a variety of different settings sort of before going to the court. So some had worked in law firms, some had, you know, interned in, in different places. They had maybe begun a PhD or an LLM or something. Um, so, you know, all of that together uh, can contribute to your application. Um, and it can, and you, know, you can sort of think about sort of how, how do you want to build in a potential judicial fellows experience into sort of what you're already doing on your route to the legal career you want to have. Um, but, you know, when I was in school, I, 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 if somebody had told me that, I would have said, no, like, I just care about going to the court. I really want to go to the court in particular. But, you know, I think it is important to, you know, step back and, and, and think about how do you want to, um, you know, develop yourself for a longer term uh, career. And, and I think that that is, at the end of the day, is the goal. I can't, I can't help but say that given that there's, there's lawyers from Yale and lawyers from Harvard on, on the show, I have to say that you must note that it was the lawyer from Harvard who talked about extreme competition in law school and, and not, the, not the lawyers from I Yale. I would like to also to jump in a little bit to, um, to go back to, the, to Amir's uh, comment. In, if you have to, uh, the opportunity to submit a French sample, do it. I did it also. And, and I also was really selective when presenting my writing samples. Um, my, as I had a background in uh, human rights and the system in the Americas, I also, my other sample was in English and was about this and was focused on international law there. Um, so also going back to, the, to Beatrice's point, um, like try to find your strengths um, from your experience, or if you're a student, what uh, have you done? Or, or for instance, if you have participated in the Jesup, or in my case, I participated in the Shahuso added, uh, I think that, um, that that adds a lot to your application. And if you're really young right now and you're seeing the podcast, maybe you can contemplate to participate in, in one of these mood courts that there are in international law, it will give you 
a really good um, like yeah, knowledge and experience and it can, can add it to your application. Right, that's, that's in fact a very good point. So we know that there's like, so in the ICJ Judicial Fellowship, there's very diverse experiences, but just as a sort of a rule of thumb or just to guide the, the listeners that we have today, what activities should students generally be, should do during their law school? So for example, by that I mean, participating in moot courts, so for example, being editors in law reviews. So what kind of activities should they go for and anything that you would like to add? this particular point? Well, just briefly, I think we've touched on a, a number of the points, but um, learning languages is, is always useful uh, at the court. Obviously, French or, or English if you're a non-native speaker, um, and, and other languages as well. I think there's always, there's always room to make use of those skills at the court. So I would, I would encourage, I know that many people do try to work on their French as, as to build up their, uh, their portfolio when applying to the court. The other thing, Camilla mentioned, of course, moot courts. Uh, there are many, many out there. The Jessup is uh, very close in nature to the work of the court. Um, so I think that if you've done the Jessup, you'll, you'll, you'll find that um, you're, you're quite well prepared in a certain respect. Um, you can also you know, work on, on short, short writing projects where there are a lot of blogs out there. That, that's another op option. Um, the court, I think, you know, pay, will pay attention to, to writings that you do in international law in general. Um, so really, you know, there's nothing in like specific that you must have done X, Y, or Z. It's, it's, it's again, that's why, I, in my opinion, sort of the theme is sort of building your, you know, broader uh, skill set and um, dedication in the field of public international law. I think that's at the end of the day, you know, what the, what what. Um, what really helps and, and it doesn't have to be just in public international law like Camilla was saying she she worked more in human rights or you know you can have an interest you could you could be more of an investment arbitration sort of person you could you can um you can you can you don't have to be just focused on the work of the court in particular but um you know just developing your your yourself uh in any of those areas i think will pay dividends if i could just say something here because i mean everyone on the on this talk at least is from an excellent university where they have great public international law programs. But there's, of course, lots of people who do not come with, with from universities with great public international law programs. And I happened, when I happened to study in India, uh, we had a very rudimentary program. And I guess the, the thought was that, that do whatever would expose you to the cutting edge of thinking in international law. Uh, and would expose you to say uh, what it means to research, how to research public international law and how to write well. Because, I mean, at least from where I come from, what you consider good legal writing in by Indian standards is definitely not good legal writing by what I learned public international law standards. So, um, I mean, there were limited opportunities within the law school uh, is the point that I'm trying to make. And there may be lots of people who find themselves in this situation, especially in uh, less developed parts of the world, uh, but that shouldn't also stop you or, or make you think that you're somehow of a handicap when it comes to applying for the court because to the court, because there's so much else you can do. And you should really, as, as Beatrice said, uh, blog posts, moots, moots were great for the Indian setup, for example, really allowed you to delve deep. Um, 
yeah so if yeah. your university doesn't have a program it's still i think you should you, you should still get exposure by by doing these things so shashank if i can jump in I'm, I'm really glad you bring this up as well given that you know um students from who belong from the global south or developing countries don't have as many opportunities and do not have as much access so i, I think this question is probably geared a bit towards you and camilla as to how maybe your personal experience uh, help with overcoming that issue of, of access and opportunity and what you did differently um, and what other recommendations you may have for students from the global south i mean i guess i guess the shortest answer to that is that and and i mean it's it's kind of uh, well i mean the short answer to that is the fact that i was able to go to the court because i went to yale law school for an llm uh, if I did not go to Yale Law School for an LLM and I just did uh, my legal studies in India or at any other university in India, it would have been practically impossible for me to go to uh, the court. So yeah, Yale Law School made it happen and, and a lot of other great law schools make that happen. Um, so that was that's, that's one answer, I guess, uh, in terms of how practically it works. A lot of the people from the global south actually end up going to the judicial fellowship program and in fact entering the field of public international law generally through these established institutions that serve as gatekeepers of the field of public international law. Uh, both a good thing and a bad thing, I guess, it has been argued in scholarship, not gonna take a position here, but uh, um, to the extent that it increases the diversity of international law, it's a great thing that these institutions continue to offer these opportunities to, to people from the global south. Of course, they still serve and exercise some amount of control in serving as then gatekeepers as to who's allowed to go through and who's not. And then you could argue that, that not allowing somebody who hasn't studied at one of these universities um, to not go to the court because say their university can't fund it is a major impediment. So I, I do really feel that, that funding is a major problem. Um, we had people who had very sort of different amounts of funding available to them. So again, you have, you have law schools with, with great endowments like, like Harvard and Yale who have well-established programs, who have a stipend that I think is fixed and, and it's indicated before you apply. Others I know from my year uh, that, come from, that came from the developing world had to negotiate with their universities. And it wasn't always clear as to how much money they'd be getting or if they'd be getting any at all. Um, and sometimes they had to sort of make ends meet through their, through their, from their own pocket. So those were difficulties that people had to go through. And, and um, I think that continue and can only be alleviated by the court offering some sort of support for, for greater diversity. And, and Camilla, maybe your input on that as well? Yeah, of course. Um, yeah, of, uh, in, in my situation, uh, I guess I could, I, I could have and I, I, I wouldn't be able to, to have this experience in the court if I ha haven't had the sponsorship from However, I, I do remember a small talk that I had, a conversation that I had with President Yusuf, and I still have it in my mind and I still think that there is a lack of advocacy of the, for this program in global South universities. I don't think that it is not impossible to, um, to access from a global South university. The fact is that sometimes uh, maybe the universities don't focus uh, in sending their students to the to the program, and he mentioned it that uh, one university in Colombia used to send students directly to participate in the program. So I think that that's really valuable, and it, it touched me because I actually am trying to connect with universities here to start um, seeing how you can 
send students from advanced programs, master programs, or PhD programs to participate in the program. Um, because I, I, I do believe that that diversity comes from, um, well, from, from also advocating your own countries to, to promote the program. There was a Colombian fellow uh, with me in my year from a Colombian university, I believe, Camilla. So. Yeah, if, if all of you could also perhaps, like Shashank mentioned right now, talk about other fellows in your own batches and, and maybe if you are aware or if you remember anybody, what was the sort of representation like at, at the time? What, what were their backgrounds like as well? Because indeed there is a bit of a pattern where, where Shashank mentioned this concept of gatekeepers, where there are certain sort of specific kinds of schools or universities from specific regions, uh, which, which make up the, the large majority of judicial fellows as well. So if you could provide a little bit of input as to your experience at the um, at the fellowship itself i'm i don't have numbers right off the top of my head but again i um you can go on to the court website and pull up the alumni uh and and take a look um in our in our year we, we had um we had colleagues from uh ukraine from germany from bulgaria <laughs> I'm, I'm going to forget but um you know the, Many, many students, it, it is true, they have tended to do an LLM or higher level study in international law. And it, it tends to be that that's the school that, that ended up sponsoring them. And so that's, that's why I mentioned, uh, it, yes, the, the, the initiative that uh, Judge Yusuf has proposed at the, at the UN, it is, it's just so important. And we can, we can only hope that, that, um, that it will be taken seriously. And we can also only hope that if anyone is listening to this podcast who's Sort of a, a practitioner, or in it working working in an NGO, or something that, that you'll be interested in potentially seeing if 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 your organization could sponsor a fellow. Um, I I haven't ever heard that suggested before, but um, you know it is just so you know it's just a, such a tremendous experience to to diversify the program, and it'd be money well spent in in my opinion. Yeah, on that, that was that was something that I we thought about, and it seemed to us that there'd be a minefield of conflict issues there if 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 uh, people with vested interests started sort of started sponsoring. But again, you know, you 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 win some, you lose some. You have you have both sides of the story. Right. So moving to the to the ICJ phase of the fellowship now. So maybe we can start with Amir and then everyone else can feel free to pitch in. So Amir, could you give us sort of an understanding of the life cycle of a case at the ICJ and perhaps maybe tie in the, the work of a judicial fellow at each of these phases? Sure, um, I'd, I'd be happy to. Uh, and of course, I guess um, one of the important things to note here is that just like the application process was sort of university dependent, uh, judicial fellows experience at the court will often be judge dependent because each judge has its, his or her own style of working, etc. So that's something to bear in mind. So I think we'll, we'll each talk about our sort of our own experiences and our own understanding of the general experience. Um, in terms of life cycle of ICJ cases, um, it's interesting you bring that up. Actually, we did uh, with, with ILSA, the International Law Student Association, um, I did an interview with uh, Judge Donahue uh, a couple months ago, uh, where, where we discussed in depth um, the, the life cycle of, of a case at the ICJ from application all the way to, through to judgment. So uh, if you want details on that, uh, please, please check it out. Um, but 
I think the way to think about it is that ICJ cases generally have long lifespans. Um, so, you know, you when you arrive at the court, you'll sort of realize that there are cases that are kind of in all phases of the life cycle. So, you know, when we arrived, um, I, I believe that sort of the, the Chagos advisory opinion, the, the hearings had already concluded. And so the advisory opinion was, was imminent thereafter. So we got in sort of towards the end of that. Um, there are other cases uh, that were pending, um, but for which we really didn't have um, much work to do on them because, for example, it was in the phase, the, the, you know, the written pleadings phase. And so each state would have six months or even maybe up to a year for their uh, memorials, counter memorials, reply, rejoinder, et cetera. So, um, to, to, to give you an idea, uh, a typical case could last anywhere, I think, from, you know, of course, it depends whether there are, there are preliminary objections or provisional measures or other things um, that would uh, sort of delay the proceedings. But I'd say a typical case usually lasts a minimum of, of two or three years at the court and can last for quite a long time. Um, I know that there are some cases, you can check the list of cases on, on the court's website. There are some cases that are pending have now been pending for, for perhaps at least over a decade. Um, so that really depends. Um, but the, the, the sort of unique thing about arriving and having a one-year snapshot of the work of the court is that you'll end up sort of seeing these different cases at different moments in the life cycle. So as I said, Chagos was reaching an end. There, there were moments when we were at the court and an application would be lodged by, uh, by a state um, trying to bring a case. I believe that happened maybe on two occasions uh, while, we were, while we were there in 2018, 2019. So that's very exciting. So you see, oh, wow, a new case has arrived. What's going to happen? Will there be provisional measures? What will happen, et cetera? Um, and then we also had the occasion to see, I believe, um, uh, we had a provisional measures hearing, uh, hearing while we were there and order. We had uh, preliminary objections, I believe hearing and judgment. I'm trying to think if we had something on the merits, um, but, but you know, it, it, it's going to really depend on the timing of, of when you're there. Um, but given, you know, that being said, with the ICJ's uh, docket being as, as full as it is these days with, you know, something like 15 cases pending, you know, in any year will we'll, we'll, definitely be busy. And I think if you just, for example, if you sign up for on the court's website for the press releases, uh, which you can do, and I recommend that you do to keep abreast of the, of the court's work, you'll notice that in the past several weeks, the court has been extremely active. I think now they're in the midst of, of maybe the third set of hearings in, in the past month or so. So um, that's something uh, that will really depend on, on the year when you're there. I guess nine months is also a really short time if you think about it in comparison to the lifetime of these cases. But one of the good things is that because there are so many cases, you can happen to be, you can happen to see different stages and different disputes within those nine months because uh, the court is busier with, with some stages, in some stages, and is more involved, of course, than in others. It just depends upon your judge and, and your rapport with the judge and how comfortable they are uh, trusting you and giving you work. 
Shashan, I'm really, really glad that you bring that up as well. So, so perhaps also you can provide some more input and so, so can all the other participants as to how do you distinguish then the work of a judicial fellow from the legal staff at the ICJ um, or, or an associate legal officer? Because indeed there are so many concurrent lawyers present at the ICJ working for the staff and then indeed with the judicial fellow as well. So maybe if you could also provide us some information about um, following each step. Uh, of a judicial fellow? How, how does it pan out over the nine months? So I guess in my experience, uh, I happen to be in a position. So as you can well imagine, once you go to the court and you're new to the court and you already have a P2 who's been assisting a judge and working with them closely for say one or two years, the judge is obviously going to count on that P2 more and, and trust that P2 more. And the judicial fellow is going to be given smaller tasks to ease them into it and to see how they're at it. But I guess if you successfully transition through that phase, uh, in my case, I worked seamlessly in a team with my judicial fellow. It was like a nice cohesive unit with my judge and my, my P2 and, and myself as the university trainee. And, and we worked as a team. And by the end of it, I mean, of course, the, the P2, of course, is more experienced and, and, and has greater insight into the practice and procedures of the court. But by the end of it, in terms of legal work, um, we were at a place where, where, where substantively we were discussing every legal issue and we were open to each other. Look, at, I'll, I'll just say briefly that, you know, we're, like we're saying that it, the experience depends so much on which judge you're working for and, and, and it can vary quite tremendously. But I think that there are a number of really, you know, incredible opportunities to be had, no matter what your working relationship is with, uh, with your judge. Um, often, you know, you will have, you will actually have, you know, compared to sort of sometimes compared to a domestic clerkship, you know, it's not, not, not the case necessarily that your phone's going to be ringing off the hook every two minutes that someone is asking you to produce uh, sort of just basic, you know, basic sort of materials and, and, and emails on things left and right. Um, so, so with that becomes, it is actually quite a, a, like an incredible freedom in, in a certain sense to um, work with your judge on sort of sometimes, again, depending on the situation, um, deep dives into particular legal issues um, that are really quite complex. You sometimes will work on, a, you know, you'll often work on a memo for each and every case that, that is coming before the court. Um, sometimes you'll be working on, um, on, um, on sort of uh, evidentiary issues. Um, so actually one of the interesting things about the court is that it's both you know, sort of a trial court in nature, a court of first instance, but it's also an apex court. Uh, so you'll, you'll have a nice mix of high level legal issues, maybe about treaty interpretation, maybe you'll write a memo about that. But at the same time, maybe you're working on, you know, making a, a, a factual, a summary of the factual record and, and sort of points in dispute. So it's a, it can be, a, you know, the tasks can, can vary quite a lot. Uh, there are many different um, types of work that you may do, um, but I think what's exciting is that the court has so many different um, sort of opportunities to participate because as Amir was saying, the cases are so long. Uh, and like I was just saying, the, the court sort of has different, it sits in sort of different capacities even within one case in particular. So, so there's, you know, there's really interesting work all around um, to, be, to be had. And, and I found the experience um, quite rewarding in that, you know, you're, you're able to dive in and, and to, to make the most of uh, learning as much as you can about, about the substance of the cases before you, the procedure, uh, and, and, 
and all of the, the sort of sub-issues that come along the way, which are often quite complex, and you may not have studied in law school. So you, you get to dive into sort of the mechanics of how is a case kind of flowing through the court, and, and what are the, the fault lines and, 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 and the pitfalls and, and, and how it moves through the court, uh, through, the, through the different procedural phases. So Beatrice, if I could just quickly jump in and ask, you, you mentioned working with a judge, and I understand that this question, again, is probably quite judge-dependent and differs from person to person, but how much face time should you expect with a judge on that on average? What is that level of interaction? Is, is it like a sort of mentor-mentory relationship? Is it quite direct in that nature? Maybe if you could also just provide some insight into that. Sure. So I think that a, a lot of the judges do um, make quite an effort to mentor uh, their judicial fellow. It, it's again, it, it's going to vary quite widely. It, it's not necessarily a day in and day out relationship. Uh, like I was saying, in the sense of a domestic court clerkship, you know, you're kind of constantly uh, in, in, in conversation with your judge. Um, but you know, you will, you will have assignments, you will uh, discuss your assignments, you will uh, you know, you will, you will work with your P2, you, you know, you, you're going to have, um, um, uh, I, I, I think, in, I think you're going to have a, a, very, a very, develop a very meaningful relationship where you're going to have opportunities to present, you know, to, to, to work, uh, with the judge on, on, on his views, perhaps you'll be able to present your own views, uh, and really have an, an interesting substantive back and forth. Um, that, that's my experience. I don't know if others would want to chime in. I, I would just add one thing that as Beatrice, as Beatrice mentions, so, you know, the day-to-day the -day with the judge um, and your team will vary uh, depending on the team, of course. Um, and there were some judicial fellows who were extremely busy, I would say. Um, but I would say that the majority of, the, of, of fellows sort of had a nice amount of work, uh, which left a little bit of room for the fellows to sort of take initiative on various things. So when I say that, I mean, on the one hand, there's taking initiative within the context of the court's work, right? So, you know, you, you, you see an issue, you flag it for your judge or your P2 or your fellow judicial fellows and, you know, uh, dive into it, look into it. And, and I, I think that that was one of the most memorable and rewarding aspects of, 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 you know, the program. I mean, I have these vivid memories of sort of Beatrice coming in to my office with her cup of tea and saying, you know, did you notice this thing? And, you know, it, it prompts a debate. Um, so, you know, really, I think that the, the program, you know, the title fellowship is really, is really accurate now. And I think that that's part of why, why they changed it because, you know, you're, you're there to kind of self-motivate and, and undertake, um, you're, you're there to assist the, the court in its work for sure, but it's also a year that allows you opportunities to sort of explore whatever it is you want to explore. You're sitting in the Peace Palace where you have, not only do you have the library of, um, of the Peace Palace, which is a huge resource, but there's also the library of the ICJ itself. And between those two resources, there is not a single source related to international law that they cannot get you, you know, within 24 hours. So, you're sitting there with, you know, a nice desk, uh, beautiful view of the gardens of the Peace Palace, all of international law at your fingertips. So it's a year that, you know, you can use to, in your free time, um, you know, work on publications, explore different things. Uh, Beatrice and I, along with um, 
along with another judicial fellow uh, who's currently a P2 at the court, Tim McKenzie, we uh, co-authored, for example, the, the Jessup problem from last year. You know, there's all kinds of all kinds of things you can do, and The Hague is also uh, a place that's full of young international lawyers doing very interesting things at a wide range of, of tribunals. Um, as you know, Ferris, from, from living in, in, in Korea, you know, it's, it's um, there's a lot of opportunities. So it's a year that you, you should think about when you're, when you're going to, uh, to the court, you should think, okay, well, you know, these are my goals for my work with the judge and at the court. Um, and you have to, you know, bear in mind that you're gonna need to be a little bit flexible depending on the, the style of your judge. So, you know, you need to then also maybe have some personal goals uh, related to your academic interests or professional, uh, professional interests, et cetera, that maybe you want to, uh, to pursue during that year. Yeah, I think uh, you sort of evaluated the experience of the year really well. So moving towards the conclusion phase of this uh, episode. So Camilla, starting with you, how would you sort of, what would be your evaluation of your experience or your year at the International Court of Justice? And sort of if you could just give us uh, an explanation of how this has helped you in going forward in the trajectory that you set out for your career. Of course. Um, well, the ICJ program for me is, I, I can just say it, it was really magical. Uh, looking at it by, well, think like right now, uh, looking at it with different eyes, uh, I think that it was, as Amir mentioned, it, it's a really, really special place to be there. It's a once in a life opportunity if you don't become a P2 or maybe a judge. So being not only in the, I, uh, well, being the Peace Palace, sharing with the people uh, that you have around because most of the people have the same interests that you do and are curious about the things that you care. And so the, the conversations like escalating in different levels and also the, the Hague is a magical place. It's quiet, it's romantic. Um, it allows you also to, 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 to have time for yourself and maybe to think about what next step you would like to take in your life and to reflect about your life. Sometimes, well, you live in busy cities and you don't have that kind of time. Living in, in the Netherlands is also, the Netherlands is a really easy going country for, for international people and to adapt is easy and fast. And also you have all the tribunals. So yeah, it was, it was really magical. And regarding my, my next, the next step in my career, uh, it took, I, I took a while before I decided to, to choose what I wanted to do. I actually didn't, didn't have any plan afterwards. And I, I applied to multiple jobs, but when I had some, some offers, I, I also was really selective to, to do a next step because I wanted to continue in the career of international law from the human rights point of view or, or from, from a more public interest. It was a, a, a public, in, yeah, um, like more in a global um, framework, but uh, it's really, it's a, it's a really competitive scene. However, I, I can say that it has leveraged and potentialized my career to to other spectrums of, of the law. 
because right now maybe my profile um, can be considered to other other practices of law that before wasn't. Uh, so yeah, for me it was a, a tremendous experience. I really value the people that I met and the time that I had there. So thanks for that. Maybe, maybe we can go to Shashank. Yeah, I guess magical is the right word to use it for it, isn't it? Um, those nine months were absolutely magical. Um, just, I mean, Amir mentioned the, the setting, which is, of course, the Peace Palace and, and um, Dutch cafes serving good breakfast and all of that where you can just go. But I guess more important than all of that was also just the people that you were surrounded with. An exceptional, exceptional community of individuals, some of the sharpest legal minds from all across the world, and, and nicest human beings, of course, also, uh, that, that you could find uh, that care about, that care deeply about the same issue. Um, and, and most often with an open mind. I mean, I, I remember, I, I, I mean, mentioned that they happened to write the Jessup problem. In my, in my case, it was a different realization. Sitting in a hearing, realized that all counsel that appeared before the court are, are usually of the same ilk and, and cut, uh, come from the same invisible college. So ended up working together with the P2 that year and writing an article um, on the demographics of the ICJ bar, um, talking about how sort of uh, Western it is, et cetera, had great discussions with people at the court, you know? I mean, of course, those people would never acknowledge the fact that they would ever publish that or whatever, but just people are there with an open mind. If you have a sense of trust, you can really discuss and get ideas about so many things under the sun. Uh, take them forward with your own initiative, as, as Amir mentioned. I happen to, in terms of concrete next steps, take a step that is quite powerful for the course for people who go to the court, which is basically move to the Iran-US Claims Tribunal, uh, which also happens to be another international institution, uh, another international tribunal in, stationed in The Hague, uh, a short walk down from the court. Um, so I worked for an American judge at the Iran-US Claims Tribunal. A lot of uh, the judicial fellows before and after me have also taken that path. Um, I worked there for a while. I was pretty sure by the time that I, I left at the court that I definitely wanted to pursue a career in public international law. And again, um, for me personally, going back to India was not an option at that time because there was just no public international law at that time in India. Nobody was practicing it. Um, and so I, I had to find ways to stick around, um, used to go back for a couple of months and then come back and try and find internships, et cetera. Um, and then eventually the WTO came through and I, and I got a job here, uh, working as a dispute settlement lawyer, uh, still continuing in the field of public international law. And I guess in hindsight, another thing that I really like is the fact that I've had the experience of all of these courts and different institutions because international law can also be really fragmented as we all know. And, and dispute settlement is especially coalesces around communities that are repeated actors in those fields, you know? So uh, just, just having a, a trip through all of these different fields has been uh, a privilege. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, sure. Yeah. I mean, I thought the experience of the court was just uh, really tremendous. One of the things I think that, you know, you, you just, you draw so much substantive uh, knowledge during that year, just from being at the court, following the cases, you think about so many things that you, you didn't have time to think about in, in, you know, in just one or two international law courses. 
in, in the law school setting. Um, so I found that, the, that being at the court and, and, and studying the cases and, and doing the work really opened up a lot of new avenues of thinking um, about, about, about a whole host of issues um, before the court that I never thought about before. I know provisional measures, provisional measures are now, you know, uh, really obviously uh, famous because of uh, Gambia v. Myanmar case, but, you know, re like looking at it through, uh, in, with a nuanced lens was something I'd never done before, thinking about how uh, the court's uh, law and practice has evolved over time, um, thinking about how the judges differ in their approaches to treaty interpretation or something. You know, these are all things that I hadn't had an opportunity to, to really um, focus on before. And so I really found the experience just tremendous um, in that respect. And talking, you know, going to work every day, we get to talk to 14 of your great friends who also love public international law and who are really knowledgeable. It's just, it's just such a rare experience. Um, and, 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 and one that, you know, really is what helps to make you a better, a better lawyer and, a be and, and, and more knowledgeable about, about uh, the subjects at the court. Um, so yeah, I, I can only echo what Camilla said about it's, yeah, it's a magical experience. You do have to make the most of your time while you're there. And I echo Amir's point, point entirely that, you know, you have to be flexible, flexible in, in all, you know, all aspects of, of the work and, and really try to, you know, set goals for yourself and, and make sure that you're doing what you can to make, you know, make the most of the experience and, and learn as much as you can, because it's just, it's, it's such a privilege to be at that court that um, you know you, you want to walk away from it uh, feeling like you know you're 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 that much closer to your you know to your goal of, of being a public international law practitioner if that's what it is or scholar or you know what have you. So that's uh, that's my take. Right. So Amir, any parting thoughts before we end the session? Um, let's see. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I just have to echo everything that's been said in the past few minutes about all the tremendous aspects of, of the program. Um, I think something, you know, the peers, the, the setting of being in The Hague, the time it allows you, the doors that are then opened um, for the international law profession and, and, and individuals' careers, is it really can't be underestimated. I think that I've, I felt that in the past year or so um, with that experience from the ICJ. Because these institutions often feel like a black box from the outside that you don't really understand how they work. But then once you have that sort of inside understanding, um, it really is, is helpful for you in your career in international law uh, going forward. Um, and of course, the conversations you have with your judges, um, you know, who I think one of the best aspects of that is that, uh, you know, it's a generational difference, right? So my, my, um, my judge was the oldest, is currently the oldest on the court and, you know, I remember on the first day when I sat down, he he was telling an anecdote about about the work that he had done on the Barcelona traction case, and you know it was kind of mind blowing for me to be sitting here as a as, sitting there as a young uh, young uh, international lawyer uh, at the beginning of my career to be able to have that kind of interaction with with uh, an individual like that, and I think that that is sort of um, emblematic of what the court is. It's it's really just a sort of a wealth of of knowledge, and it's there for you to um, to sort of tap into uh, during your year. Um, and so I think my parting words then would be uh, for individuals not to be afraid to sort of really um, 
actively apply for the program. I think that um, alumni have a, have a role to play to encourage their universities to value the program, to talk about the program like we're doing now. Uh, students who are at universities that haven't previously participated in the program should not be shy to reach out to their deans, to professors, uh, to try to, to get the program running. And then of course, if the trust fund becomes, um, becomes up and running, that would also provide an opportunity there. But, um, but I think that the program is, uh, to go back to what Shashank said at the beginning, it started as a very sort of organic, uh, non-formalized non thing that has grown into to an institution. And that's really because of the people um, who have supported it and participated in it and continue to try to, to build it up. So we would encourage everyone to, to apply to the program and participate. And on that note, we end this episode. Thank you everyone for taking out the time and joining us for this uh, insightful session. And yeah, we'll see you in the next episode. Yeah, absolute pleasure to have everybody. Thank you so much.